Okay, today we've got a real treat. Mike Gamble's here. We're in this series called Friends of Journey, and uh, Mike is definitely a friend of Journey. He grew up in our grandmother church um, in Billings, and so he actually served and taught uh, youth ministry with our lead pastor, Brian Hopkins. So I've been trying to get information out of Mike, like some dirt on uh, Brian, but I think Brian got to him before I did because he's not telling me anything, but I'm sure he's got some stories. And uh, he leads a church in Houston, uh, called the Foundry, and uh, he's an executive pastor. I'm an executive pastor, so we talk a lot of logistics here that, uh, last night and this morning. And found out that they run eight services on Sunday, so uh, I'm not going to go to Houston anytime soon to be a part of that. Two's enough for me. But uh, anyway, would you help me welcome Mike to the stage, please? Thank you, John. And I assure you, you could handle eight services on a Sunday morning. We'd make it work. Well, it's good to be here this morning. It's uh, my honor and privilege just a few months ago, Derry called me up and he and I were chatting and I mentioned I was going to be here on vacation. Uh, And he asked me, well, would you mind filling in for Brian uh, to to preach a sermon on Sunday morning? And here's what I have to tell you. Normally, I would say no to that kind of thing. And it's because well, I'm on vacation, and who wants to go to church when they're on vacation? I mean, I, I already go to church like 50 weeks a year, and, and then to spend time with pastors. I don't know about you, but they're not usually the funnest bunch. And so, but it was actually really great to reconnect with Brian. I got to see him last night, and I always enjoy spending time with Derry. And they told me what an amazing church you guys were, and I thought, yeah, okay, you know, that's what pastors just say about churches. But now that I see you here this morning... I am impressed indeed, because for you to love Jesus more than out there is a testimony to your faith that you came here to worship him. And it reminds me of a passage in Ephesians. Uh, Paul says this, he says, ever since I heard, he's talking to the Ephesian church, he says, ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord, come to church on Sunday morning in Bozeman on July 25th, I have not stopped thanking God for you, and I pray for you constantly. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen to these words, to give you wisdom and insight so that your hearts may be flooded with light so you can understand the confident hope that he has given to you. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about God flooding your heart with light so that we can do the very simple thing that he has told us to do. And it's just really simple. Love him and love your neighbor. And if you've been a Christian your whole life, then you will know that this is a little harder than maybe it sounds at first. And if you're new to the faith, and that sounds simple and straightforward, it's true, it is. It's both simple and difficult to do. I am missionary to the, to the Houston people, Northwest Houston suburbanites. And if it sounds boring, it is. Church is an industry in Houston for in part because there's nothing else to do on the weekends. And, and it's just, it's really, uh, sometimes I, I go, Lord, really here? Um, when I was in high school, Brian got a big chuckle out of this last night. When I was in high school, uh, somebody came once and they talked about being a missionary to Africa. And I was like, I'll go to Africa. I'll go anywhere. But Lord, don't send me to Oklahoma. I don't know why I picked on Oklahoma, but that's why I did. Uh, and so the Lord certainly, certainly has a little sense of humor. He sent me to Texas instead. And indeed, like I mentioned, to Texas, suburbia. And I'll tell you, if there's anything true that I've discovered about suburbia, is that suburbia is a place, is a culture, where people are interested in consumerism, convenience, and safety. 
These are the things that dominate that culture. And I don't know if that resonates with you here, but I have found that this just permeates American culture everywhere I go. Just consumerism, what can I gather? Materials and the stuff that I have, defined by my car, defined by, you know, these, this, the creation, the things that we create with our hands. And then, and then con- just convenience. Man, if we, if we make church just a little bit too hard, people won't come. It just, just doesn't happen. People just won't do it. And then the other thing is, is safety. We're, uh, we have a mission trip that we had planned for families to go down to, to a little orphanage in Mexico. And, you know, we can't go now because violence is broken out in the streets. You know, gangs and fighting and people being beheaded. It's, it's ugly, but we, we certainly can't go because it's not safe, people say. So, but we have this culture, we live in this, and this is the context that I work in, this is the context that God has called me as a missionary to, and so I'm going to share some reflections of, on, on this whole issue of God flooding our hearts with light in that context. I had a friend come to me a few years ago, his name's John, and, and he and I had gotten to know each other pretty well, and, and he's, he, he asked, hey, can I take you to lunch? And I'm like, hey, I'm always up for free food, and it's kind of like my love language. It's just, it's just amazing. And so he knew that, so he paid for my hamburger, and he said, hey, um, I need to talk to you about something. Have you, ever, have you ever worked with someone and helped someone whose heart is dead? He said, I just feel like my heart's dead. I, 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 all I do is work. I am addicted to work. I'm addicted to my BlackBerry and my iPhone because in Houston, it's not cool. You just have to have two phones. You just, you do. It's not even, you know, people pull up both phones. And uh, so it's just the way that it is. And, and he said, I just, I come home from work. I always leave early. I come home late. I have a beautiful wife. I have four beautiful kids. And I don't even know they exist because all I'm focused on is just, is just work. And, and I don't know, I'm just dead inside. And I don't know what to do about it. Have you ever helped someone like me? He said, by the way, all those simple church things aren't going to work because I've tried them all. It doesn't work. And so I began thinking about this issue of, of the heart on the inside just, just not, not working and not having the capacity to love the simplest people in our lives. And uh, it was about three years later that my friend John uh, got fired. He got laid off like a lot of other people. But he was really good at what he did. And so he found a job in Dallas. Great job. Lord's kind of moved him up in the world. But he moved to another safe, convenient, you know, uh, consumerist uh, master plan community in Dallas. Beautiful place. Beautiful home. It's amazing. And uh, one day after six months, you're screaming outside of his door. Just screaming outside. So he walks outside, which is a risk in Dallas because it's hot. But he walks outside, and his neighbor, the, the woman, his, the wife, who he's never met uh, after six months even, she's just screaming and crying. And, and the man, uh, again, the, who he doesn't even know his name, is just lying face down on the ground, and John goes and he rolls him over, and he checks for his pulse, no pulse. He does CPR on him for 30 minutes. He's dead. Heart attack. 44, 13-year-old daughter most likely thing if you're going to die that you can die from is a heart attack, heart disease. Kills 650,000 Americans every year. And the thing that kills our Christian walk is our lack of love. It just is. It's, you know, yeah, sometimes the wrong beliefs get in there and that happens too, but more or less, someone hard comes along to love and we just kind of fall apart. You know, for some of us, it might be a dad who's, who's getting Alzheimer's and he suddenly becomes way more difficult than we thought. Or it's a child who becomes a teenager and they start telling us that they hate us and they wish we weren't born. Or uh, these things, they kill us. And if our hearts aren't ready, 
we just kind of go, God, you failed me. And so my question is, how do we strengthen our heart? Well, in the physical world, the way we strengthen our heart is through exercise, a disciplined exercise. So, so I, I did some research and I found out that if you exercise 1,000 calories at an aerobic rate, every week you'll cut your chance of dying of heart disease in half. So I'm like, well, let me do that. So I start running three and a half miles, uh, uh, three and a half miles a day, three days a week, just to do that simple. How do we do that in the spiritual life? How do we do that for our spiritual hearts? And so we're going to talk about two things this, this morning. And again, if you're new to the faith, uh, you may have never heard of these ideas before and they'd be kind of new to you. But if you're a Christian, you've been around a while, this is probably something you've heard about and probably something you've avoided. Uh, just to be, you know, because we do, because we don't like these things. The first one is forgiveness. We're going to talk about forgiveness. That's kind of a fun topic, huh? And a beautiful thing to talk about on July 25th. But that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so forgiveness, uh, Jesus says these things like, uh, uh, if your brother sins against you, forgive him seven times, 70 times. That's kind of annoying. Uh, and, and, and then when I went to Foundry, Foundry's a really uh, diverse church. And by diverse, I don't mean demographically, we're all white Anglos. Uh, what I mean is that it's, we have traditional and contemporary and weird contemporary and theater contemporary. We just kind of do everything. And, uh, but one of the things they do in our traditional service is they pray this Lord's Prayer every week. And, uh, you know, I know I grew up in faith, and, and maybe I should have learned it there, but I didn't. Uh, and, and so I stand up in the liturgy, and, and I'm, that's the, what we do up here, this liturgy, the order of service and stuff. And I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to lead the people in the Lord's Prayer. And I've never, like, huh, this is out of the Bible. This is interesting. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven. You ever heard it before? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I still have to read it usually because I forget it. But there's a part in there where he says, forgive us for our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's just part of the deal of being a Christian that we forgive. Doesn't mean we don't cause God to forgive us because we forgive. That's, That's just weird theology. It's just God forgives us so we forgive. And so the first thing that we have to realize is when we forgive, this whole, you've, perhaps you've heard the mantra, forgive and forget. You've heard that? That's hogwash. I don't know who came up with that, but it's just not practical. It's not realistic. When we're talking about forgiveness, the first thing we have to recognize is, well, we have to establish, first of all, that there's sin in the world. You know, I had a conversation with someone a while back who, said, who thought that sin was the whole problem with Christianity. They said, you know, Christianity is fine except for the sin part. Hmm, okay. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be open-minded and I'm you know, trying to have a conversation, but I, I'm going to win you over to sin this morning. If you don't believe in sin, I'm going to win you over. It's my goal. Uh, and so, just a little apology for sin here. Um, I have an eight-year-old. Uh, her name is Adele. And I have a five-year-old. Her name is Elizabeth. And uh, I, one day, uh, my wife has unwisely left me with the feeding and the tending of the children. And, and she's gone. And so it's me. And I have sent them up into their playroom to watch a movie or something, you know, useful. Uh, and so I'm, I don't know what I was doing, but it was important. And uh, I hear this buzzing in my ear. Can I piece of bubblegum? 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 And I don't know if you can hear that out there with the microphone and the echo and such. But uh, it, it, to slow it down can I have a piece of bubble gum? And she's tugging at my arm. After probably about 30 seconds, she became quite insistent and irritated with me that I was not responding to her. I was focused. And, and, and so, she, and finally, I look at her and I say, what? Can I have a piece of bubble gum? And what do you think I said? Yes. No, yes, I get various answers. You all think way too highly of me. I, I was just confused. I was still befuddled. Like, what? What are you talking about? Slow down. Why would you want a piece of bubble gum? Like, I, I just, 
Okay, at that point, at that point, what do I say? Of course, in my, my brain, am I going to get in trouble for giving her a piece of bubble gum? That's, that really is the question that I'm thinking because it's easier to give her the gum, right? It's just the way that it is. And so I'm like, okay, you can have a piece of bubble gum. Okay, now here's the deal and here's where the sin comes in. Maybe it already came in, but uh, here's where it comes in. I know as the parent of two children that because I have a five-year-old also, there is just a natural hierarchy of web of implications to the decision I just made. And so there's a 10 count, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, thump, 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 thump. We have a little spiral staircase, five-year-old, can I have my candy? Can I have a starburst? She wanted a starburst. Can I have a starburst? Can I have a starburst? At that point, I have a choice. I can either say yes and give her what she wants, or I can say no. And if I say no, I will be calling down the wrath of 30 pounds of five-year-old down upon my head. And in that moment, the only thing that it can, it can explain the world to her are the concepts of sin and wrath. My sin, specifically. You see, we believe in sin when it's someone else's. We just don't like the idea that we have anything to do with it. See, when people sin against us, we're all for it because we are hurt. And when it comes to forgiveness, the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that, frankly, there's sin in the world and someone has hurt me and I am hurt. We can't just forget about it. We're not there yet. We have to say, you know what, I'm hurt. And I know that that might go against the whole macho culture of Montana that I grew up in, and we just kind of ignore it. But, you know, that's just a bad idea, just to be really honest. Ignoring that you're hurt, it's just stupid. doesn't work. And so we have to acknowledge our pain and ignore that we're hurt. And the second thing is that we have to remember, not forget, we have to remember that God's forgiven us. And we don't have to go into specifics, but just in general, okay, yeah, I've done some things wrong, okay. I have to remember that God has forgiven us. And the third thing is that we have to establish who is judge. God is judge. Let me tell you a story. Uh, the foundry, one of our contemporary worship leaders uh, is a guy named Robert. Robert. Robert's a great guy. You would, you would really enjoy Robert. He's really laid back, worship leader. He's been in the worship scene for a really long time. And before that, he was a hard living pagan. And so... Uh, He's just a great guy. He's kind of got both worlds to him. And, and I really enjoy that about him. Uh, but he woke up a couple months ago and found out that his sister and his mother had been murdered by his brother-in-law. And as I talked with him about this kind of process, my worship leader just had his sister and mother murdered. I mean, so we have some pastoral care issues here. Uh, and and th- even I recognize that. And, and so Robert and I are conver- having a conversation and he's telling me about his meeting with the DA. Now the DA is the guy that, in, you know, is, is going to prosecute the case before the judge. He gathers the family together and they go through everything and they start telling the judge or the DA what they want this man charged with and what they want to see happen. You know, death penalty, that kind of thing, which in Texas will happen. Uh, The DA told him, no, no, you don't understand. You have no say in what I charge him with. You have no say in what I suggest his penalty is. You are not the judge. You are not the prosecutor. You are the victim. And Robert told me that was the most liberating thing that he had heard. The idea that he didn't have to be guilty 
He did not have to stand before God and say, I want him dead. He didn't have to do that. His job was to process and grieve the hurt that had happened to him. And I'll tell you, I know he's going to do it because he has a strong heart. Because his heart in Christ, because he's been forgiven greatly, he can stand up and he stood up at at the funeral of his sister and his mother and he said, "Ah, we have no choice other than to forgive him. It doesn't mean that he's not going to go to jail or doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that we need to forgive. God is judge. We are not. We do not need to determine what someone has done wrong or what's going to happen to them. We just need to forgive. And so the first thing we do, and I mentioned this, the first thing we do is we admit we're hurt, we remember for, we're forgiven, we remember that God is judge, and then we do this thing called forgive. And I'm just going to use a simple, it's going to maybe get controversial, but for me, forgiveness is giving control back to God. Here's what I mean. When someone hurts us, they're trying to control us whether they're trying to affect their will or trying to change our behavior or just do what they want. They walk into the room and we're angry and we don't like them. It controls our behavior. We treat them the way they make us feel. That's just normal. That's human. Well, Jesus says forgiveness is treating the way that he makes us feel. So when we forgive, we give control of our actions and our attitude and our affections back to Jesus. That's what forgiveness is. Does it make it go away? Does it mean that they haven't done something wrong? It just means we give control back to Jesus. And the fifth thing is that we learn from what's happened. You know, this story of uh, the disciples, they come to Jesus. How many times do we have to forgive? Jesus says seven times 70. So what happens at 491, right? So someone comes into my office and says, Pastor, you know, someone sinned against me 491 times. I'm ready to condemn them. My question is, how dumb are you? You let them sin against you 490 times? I mean, there's forgiveness, and then there's putting your way, you walking into, a, into the middle of 290, I-90 tra- in traffic. I'm mad you hit me. I mean, seriously, if someone's toxic and dangerous, get out of their way. At what point are you culpable? You know, and so my point there is learn. Just learn. Learn. Okay, so we've talked about forgiveness, and I, I believe, I, I suggest that forgiveness is kind of a hard exercise, that, that what it allows you to do is strengthen your heart so that when someone tough comes into your life and really, really hurts you, that you'll have the capacity and the pro- to be able to go through the journey of actually forgiving them. Not that the memory's gone, but then to start living like it never happened, living as if Jesus is in control, which he is. And so forgiveness. The next thing is kind of the dual side of forgiveness. If there's forgiveness, then there's also confession. And I don't mean this as, hey, go home and you know, confess your deepest, darkest sin to the person you've hurt and then expect them to forgive you because you said you're sorry. I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about the ability to call up a friend and say, hey, can you swing by the office and can we talk for a few minutes because I just need to talk to somebody. I'm talking about the ability to go to someone and say, yeah, there's a sin in my life that is eating me up. It's killing me. I can't even even function because of what this is doing to me. I need help. I'm talking about having a friend who you can go to in a time of need and say, I'm just not getting it right. My question is, do you have that friend in your life? Someone who who you can really go to and call up, and you can know that they'll be there for you. And so this kind of, uh, this kind of approach, it, it kind of hit me over the head when I was reading a book a few months ago 
the new biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer came out about six months ago. And there was a write-up in the Wall Street Journal, so I read it. And in there, it just makes the biography makes this comment that Bonhoeffer, and, and for those of you who don't know, Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in the 30s and 40s during Nazi Germany. And uh, he, uh, he didn't really like what Hitler was doing, and so he uh, actually opposed Hitler, tried to have him assassinated, was part of a plot. Hitler found out, and Hitler had him hanged. And so he went to the, hang- he went to the noose because of his love for the Jews. I mean, it was that simple, and that's how he saw it. He saw that as his call as a Christian. But in all of this, he got his doctorate at 21. He was smart. He was an aristocrat. He was powerful. He was rich. He had everything. He had a friend he'd write letters to and say, you know what? I just need to tell you that I've been really struggling with depression lately. It's been stopping me from getting my work done. I've, uh, I've been getting distracted I've not been faithful to what God's asked me to do, and I really am questioning my ability to be a good Christian. I'm not sure that I'm really going to be able to see this through to really stand up and suffer with those who, who are being persecuted. He had someone in his life who he, could, who he could say this to, who he could be honest with and open with. And I begin to ask myself the question, what are the qualities of such a person? Well, the first one, I have three qualities, and they're simple. I think they need to be wise, I think they need to be humble, and I think they need to be safe. A wise person is able to put your, your, what you're struggling with in context and is able to help you understand it. If they use shame or guilt, yeah, find someone else. But if they help you understand, okay, yeah. Someone walks in my office and says, hey, I'm struggling with pornography. Okay, help them put it into context. Here's the scope, here's, and here's what we're going to do. Someone who's wise enough actually to be able to understand how to help you. And so they have to be wise. They have to be humble. And I just want humble. I just mean they're not going to play power games. Because I've found in the church, we like to play little power games with sin. Like, oh, if you sin, oh, that makes you bad. And, you know, I'm better than you. Because, you know, if someone thinks they're better, find someone else. And then safe. I also could use the word kind. But I don't like the word kind because it suggests niceness. And if there's anything kind of anemic about American Christianity is that we think that being nice is being like Jesus. That's just silly. Jesus was often not nice. He was kind and he was safe. Are they safe? Can you go to them and know that they're not going to use it against you? So, so you know, the best way to find wise, humble, safe people, I mean, you know the answer, you know where I'm about to go with this, is to be a wise, humble, safe person. You know, I have friends like this in my life because I try to be friends like that to them. It's just the way that this works. And so when we practice this as a lifestyle where I regularly just accept the fact that there's just stuff in my heart that just isn't working, like my friend John, able to come to me and say, it's just something's not clicking. We just live in this reality. This is going to be true. And it's not necessarily going to get easier or better. It's just, it's going to change we live in that reality, we strengthen our heart so that when tough things come along, when we really do start to struggle with something tough, we have the capacity to be honest and open and be able to process it and deal with it and continue to love God and our neighbor the way that he's called us to. And so I want to conclude with this story. When I was in seminary, I, you know, I grew up in Billings, I graduated from West and uh, I was a pastor at Hope and you know around and went to seminary 
started to dive into all the books and started to read the Bible a lot and, you know, other, what other people said. And, and there was a point where I would say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to be a pastor? Do you want me to be a professor? God didn't really say anything. He was just kind of, I don't know if you've ever got anything before and you've just nothing. Well, so that was what happened to me. And so I was persistent, though. If there's anything that I have a spiritual gift of persistence, um, some people call it stubbornness. I like to think of it as being persistent. Uh, and, and so I'm persistent with God. You know, okay, God, you know, do you want me to be a pastor or, or a, a professor? And then finally, one day I heard the response. God said, I just want you to love people. Okay, um, clearly you didn't hear the question, God. Uh, there are two options here. Uh, would you like a lollipop or a starburst? You know, I mean, I didn't, you know, I was, I was not really, I didn't realize what I was doing to God. But, you know, do you want to be pastor or professor? And some of you may be thinking, I already should have been a professor. But, but he just kept saying, I want you to love people. That's all I, I don't care. Stop it. Stop all that garbage. Just love people. That's your job. And so I ask you the same question. You know, what does God want you to do? The answer is he just wants you to love. He wants you to love him, and he wants you to love your neighbor. And there is no vocation in this room, whether it's student, teacher, mother, parent, business owner, CEO, there is no vocation that it's any different for. It's all the same. Love people. And if we're to do that, he needs to give us a new heart. He needs to reach his hands down into our chest and make our hearts beat again. Like Paul prays for the Ephesians, may he flood your heart with the light of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that we can, we can gather here on this morning as your people and celebrate the creator. And celebrate you as the one that created this marvelous creation, this beautiful place and we acknowledge that, that you are our God and our King and that you have forgiven us mightily and that you love us. We, can, we confess that we haven't always done a good job with loving and Lord, you know that. It's not a surprise to you. But we ask that you would help us to be, to be disciplined in our lives, to give you the best raw materials we can. We don't earn anything, but we sure do have a responsibility to obey you. So help us. Help us to be disciplined, living a life of forgiveness where we are quick to go through the journey of forgiveness. And, and then we just live a life of confession, realizing that we are prone to error and, and that that doesn't surprise you, but we're more interested in obeying you than we are in being perfect. So Lord, help us and give us that new heart. In Christ's name we pray, amen.